Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. This is our third week into the parables, and it has already um, been such an amazing opportunity just to let these stories of Jesus um, just come and hit you in fresh and new ways. Uh, This is one of those stories that we're going to be looking at today that has profound implications for how we see the world, for how we see God, for how we understand His kingdom. A.W. Tozer famously said that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And unfortunately, growing up, we develop these notions about who God is. And some of them are right. Some of them are formed by the Bible and by the Gospels. And some of them are formed by culture or our parents or our traditions. And these parables are given to us to disrupt, dislodge, we talked about, um, our misconceptions. And I actually came across this amazing quote about the purpose of parables by Robert Farron Kappen in his book, Kingdom, Grace, Judgment in the Parables. He says this, For Jesus, the meaning of God's kingdom is a radical mystery. Even as he tells people about it, it remains permanently intractable to all attempts to fully grasp it. Jesus did not use the parables to explain everything to people's satisfaction. Love that. But rather to call into question people's previous understandings. In other words, the parables are trying to upset people's existing ideas as well as provide them with new ones. They are meant to pop every circuit breaker in people's minds. After all our yammer and opinions about how God should or shouldn't run the world, getting people to just stand there with their eyes wide open and their mouths shut would be a giant step forward. This is what Jesus' parables are designed to do. Um, All of Luke chapter 7, people are having every circuit breaker in their brain pop. Like, it's just challenging everyone's preconceived notions. Um, For instance, uh, Luke 7 is about Jesus violating social taboos to reach out to those marginalized racially, economically, religiously, and morally. And that's where we're going to end is this, this, this story that is, is quite famous, but there's a reason why. Um, that there's something with that in these characters, in the story, we find ourselves. And in the middle of the story, there's a parable. Um, and oftentimes we focus on the story. Uh, but today, I really want us just to let the parable hit us. So this is going to be in Luke chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 36. And it says this, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. As a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. When she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them, 
when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. And yes, Jesus is answering his thought. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And here's the parable. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, a denarii is a, a day's wage, so 500 days wages, and another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Um, this is an amazing story. Uh, if you keep reading, what's fascinating is Luke chapter 8 begins to describe how there are 12 disciples, but there are also women who are traveling with him as his disciples, who are actually funding his ministry. One of those women mentioned is Mary Magdalene. Um, some scholars actually speculate that this could have actually been her. Because one thing we know about this story is this woman has already experienced forgiveness. This is why she's finding herself at Jesus' feet. Even the, pronoun the pronouncement happens at the end of the story. She's already been emotionally overwhelmed by what Jesus has offered her, which has led her to this point. Now, we don't know that for sure. We don't know who this woman is. We don't know the story of how she received forgiveness or healing or wholeness. But something's happened, and she has shown up at the feet of Jesus. And so this story breaks up into three sections. There's, there's the problem, there's the parable, and there's the pronouncement. We're just going to work through these three sections of the story. And at the end, we're going to ask ourselves where we find ourselves in the midst of it. So let's talk about the problem. So in this moment, most likely what would have happened is Jesus would have taught at the synagogue, which would have been on Sabbath, which was been Saturday. After the Sabbath teaching, um, it would have been common for someone who, with a lot of money or influence in the town, to invite the guest speaker in their synagogue over to their house for dinner. And kind of wealthy, elite religious people often not only had a home, but a courtyard around it where they'd have public dinners. This is probably what this was. And so there's kind of an inner square where there'd be a table, not with chairs, but with cushions on the floor, and you would lean in on your left hand and you would eat with your right and your feet would extend backwards into the courtyard that was surrounded by people. And it was benevolent of religious leaders to invite everyone from the city, including the poor. So the fact that this woman was there uh, was not totally abnormal. The fact that um, the language lends to the fact that she was a prostitute would have 
probably been. But she finds herself at the feet of Jesus, probably with a crowd. And something's happening, something he's saying, something he's teaching, that she came there with an alabaster jar. Now, it was common for women in the ancient world to carry with them a flask, an alabaster flask of their perfume um, that would have been very costly. And to break it open, um, you, have had to tip, you had to break open the top for it to be poured out. And she's there with her perfume, and it was, it was considered so much a part of the woman that she was allowed to wear it on the Sabbath. It wasn't considered work. And she was, she's there with the perfume, and she seems to be going to pour this on Jesus' feet. Um, the other gospel writers have a story about this closer to Jesus' death. This is a different story. But as she gets closer, she becomes so overwhelmed that she can't even get the perfume out. She just starts crying at his feet. She then starts wiping the tears, um, the dirt off his feet with her tears and with her hair. Now this is again, an incredibly provocative moment in, in this woman who's already labeled as provocative, already in the text called someone who's living a sinful life because um, a Jewish woman had to have her hair tied up. If her hair was exposed, it would have been the greatest sense of immodesty that she could have had. So the fact that she has her hair out crying on his feet, wiping the dirt off his feet. It, it gives this impression that she doesn't notice anyone else there but Jesus. And while this is happening, it's easy to turn Simon the Pharisee into a bad guy, but he's, he's kind of just being normal. This is his party. He invited Jesus to it. And now all of a sudden, it's been disrupted. And not just disrupted, but in a really peculiar, provocative way. And this woman weeping at his feet, there's hair, like there's all of these things going on. And, and, and so he just begins in his own head, starts thinking like, well, if this guy really was a prophet, which is actually a term of honor. He would know who's touching him. He would know who this woman is. And Jesus, I love this, responds to his thought um, with a parable. And so we have the problem, right? The problem is twofold. One, we have a woman who is trapped in utter sin and darkness, yet has found herself so moved by Jesus that she's acting in an audacious, overwhelming way. The second problem, though, is Simon doesn't recognize his own problem. Simon is completely blind to any sense of need that he has whatsoever. And so, one, what we see here and happen next in the, in the story is Jesus does what he does best. He tells a parable to help dislodge Simon from his stuck place. And he gives that, that famous story. He says, listen, there's, there's two people who owe money. One owes 500 days wages. I mean, just think about that in our day, day and age. I mean, this is a lot of money, well over $100,000. And there's someone who owes 50 days. And that, that's a lot as well. And he says they both were forgiven. Now, some context here. According to Jewish law, every seven years, you had to forgive all debts. Actually, it wasn't that uncommon. Yet, experts in the law had found a way around this. Um, and so people would either have to become their servants, they would have to give them some of their property or belongings. Um, there'd be some sort of tie that you're not really free. And so this parable suggests that this, this really gracious response from this moneylender that says, okay, you, you owe me over $100,000. You 
and you owe me tens of thousands of dollars, I'm going to forgive you both, no strings attached. And then he tells him this story, and he looks at Simon, he says, who, who would love him more? It's a kind of a peculiar question. But I think it brings up a good point. Does forgiveness happen because you've been loved? Or do you love because you've been forgiven? And according to this story, when you grasp forgiveness, the natural response is love. When you don't understand your need for forgiveness, then you don't recognize a responsiveness out of love. That's exactly what's taking place in this story, which leads to the end of the story, the, the pronouncement that is just so moving. I love it. He, he looks at the woman. It says, he's, he's, so he turned toward the woman, but said to Simon. So he's, not, he's no longer looking at Simon or answering his thoughts. He's now looking at the woman, and he asks this question that has always, I think, just been so profound. He says, Do you see her? And the answer is is really no. Jesus has seen her. G. Campbell Morgan says, Simon could not see that woman as she then was for looking at her as she had been. He He couldn't see the woman past her lifestyle, past her sin. And so it's why Jesus looks at her, but talks to Simon. Do you see her? It is this intimate moment. And then he just begins to start comparing their hospitality. He says, she's done this, you haven't done this. She's done this, you haven't done this. The oil, the greeting, the kissing, I mean, the things like this. There's something in her reaction that makes what you've done in this whole meal pale in comparison. And then ends it with this. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Love is the evidence of recognizing you've been forgiven. But but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. I mean, what, what what a haunting truth. Why is it hard for us to love much? Sometimes we forget that we have been forgiven much. Now, I want to just give us two, there's two ways we can recognize our need for forgiveness. One is we look at our neighbor and we size them up and we judge them and we think, am I better than them? And kind of the common phrase within our culture is, I'm a good person. And what we mean by that is I'm not as bad as some. Um, Which in a world of 8 billion people is a pretty pretty good odds that you can find other people who you would deem as worse than you. Um, And that's exactly what the Pharisees had mastered that game. They had created a moral matrix that was able to be lived out in such a way to create moral superiority 
so that their sense of needing forgiveness was incredibly limited. Why? Because they viewed forgiveness through the lens of moral comparison. And sadly, that is still what we do today. I see it happen all the time, and I see it happen in me. I see, I see, I look around, I read a headline, I see someone, or I hear about a story, and there is this inner sinister thing in me that says, I thank God I'm not like that. And really what that's speaking to is this, this lie that wants me to feel like, oh, I'm good. And we, it's all within all of us, and it was definitely within Simon. So that's, that's one way we can measure our need for forgiveness. But the other way we measure our need for forgiveness is you look long and hard into the holiness of God. And when you do that, we are in desperate need of forgiveness. There's two stories in the Old Testament that this conjures up memories for me. One is when David sins with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet comes, tells him a parable to dislodge him uh, from his stuck place. And after he recognizes the, uh, the enormity of his sin, he writes this psalm. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Now listen to verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. You see, part of what that, that parable that the prophet Nathan gave him helped him dislodge from was he was playing the games like, well, I'm a king. I'm not as bad as some kings, things like that. But all of a sudden he looked into the holy, unveiled, beauty and majesty of God and his response is I've sinned against you take not your spirit from me I mean there's something in his heart that realizes oh this is first and foremost me and God the second story that comes to mind is Isaiah the prophet the most famous prophet in all of Israel's literature has a story in Isaiah chapter 6 where he's encountering the presence of God in the throne room it's just incredible. You should read it. It is so vivid and powerful. And in this moment, this is Isaiah, the prophet to Israel, the person who gave us more messianic prophecies than anyone else. And when he sees God in his holiness, his response is this, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Now, if he's viewing his need for forgiveness through comparison, then he's the most righteous of them all. But if he views his need for forgiveness through the lens of the holiness of God, woe is me. Now, am I trying to get us to feel guilty? No, I'm not, I'm not trying to impose shame or guilt because here's what, here's what happens. When we stop looking at other people as our gauge of if we're good or bad, in need of forgiveness or not, and we start looking to God, the Holy One, and we recognize our desperate need for His intervention and His forgiveness for us, what we are met with, check this out, is the same Jesus who met this woman at Simon's dinner who says, do you see her? Do you see 
you and me and he looks because when we recognize our need for forgiveness it it births births out of us desperate beautiful overwhelming love towards jesus because he's forgiven us and man that's that's my hope when i read that we all have owed 500 denarii that's all of us and if we miss that our our ability to love god fully is going to be totally hindered. William Barclay says, the one thing which shuts us off from God is self-sufficiency. And the strange thing is that the better we really are, the more keenly we feel our sin. Paul could speak of sinners of whom I am the foremost. Francis of Assisi could say, there is nowhere a more wretched and more miserable sinner than I. It is true to say that the greatest of sins is to be conscious of no sin. But a sense of need will open the door to the forgiveness of God because God is love and love's greatest glory is to be needed. John Stott says the formal religion of the Pharisees had no real answer for the problem of sin. It could only respond with disapproval and condemnation, but Jesus could actually do away with sin and in this deepest sense bring salvation and peace. So here, here's my, my desire for you as we conclude. As we hear this story, um, where do we see ourselves? Are we, are we Simon leaning up against the table of our own self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and morality, thinking, thank God I'm not like fill in the blank? Or are we the woman who has gazed into the holy and beautiful eyes of Jesus Christ and found themselves unable to even pour perfume before the tears well up within us and are poured at his feet? Because we've seen our Savior. That's my hope, is that we move from Simon the the Pharisee to this woman. Because... This is how the story ends. Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst himself, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That word saved is not you go, go to heaven per se. It's um, the word sozo means you've been made whole. So can I just say, in this moment, could we look at the holiness of God, recognize our deep need for our own wholeness? For some of you, that's not hard. For some of you, we've, we've cloaked that. But let's all become aware of it. And in that moment, not rest in the weight of shame, but look to Jesus and hear those words rush over our souls. Your sins are forgiven. You have been saved. You've been made whole. Go in peace. Would you find yourself at the feet of Jesus today, receiving his forgiveness, welcoming his advocacy and his love over your life? Would it resound so much louder than the noise of the enemy and of culture and your inner critic? And let's just rest in the loving forgiveness of our Savior.
Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. <laughs>